Good morning, church. Hey, we want to welcome you here uh, to the Wills Point campus. Also want to welcome those that are joining us in Edgewood. Uh, real quickly, if those of you uh, that are married in the room, I've got a question for you. Have you ever been stressed in marriage? Would you raise your hand? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, hey, let's, let, let's wait real quick. Edgewood's not participating. Okay. Go ahead, Edgewood. Okay. So here's the deal. Uh, we have lots of marriage stressors in which in a few minutes, I'll unpack a few of those. But um, I remember, uh, and I think if you were to catch Kelly after this service, she could pinpoint the number one time where in our marriage, we had the biggest challenge. Uh, matter of fact, it was about two years into our marriage and we had experienced a house fire, had uh, lived in a little uh, one-room cabin uh, together, had now had our house remodeled, we're moving in. And as we were moving in, we had brought some stuff in, we were getting settled. And that evening, she had decided to go to the store, and she was gone for a while, and then she came in, and she had new, what I would consider glasses to drink out of, or tumblers. Uh, but they were they kind of looked you know, fancy and sparkly, and, uh, and I... Uh, Ask the question, hey, why, why did you buy those? Uh, like, what, what, what's the point of that? Um, and it didn't go over so well. Um, matter of fact, uh, she's like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, like what, why do we need those? Like, I don't, I don't understand why you would go. And if I remember correctly, I kind of accused her of spending frivolously. Um, and, and just like, hey, do we really need that? It seems a little excessive. Now, just context, I grew up in a house where a foam cup was plenty. Or if you went to a Friday night football game and you had those plastic cups, you get the concession stand. We just had like 30 of those, and that's all we needed. And so we, that's how I lived, and that's exactly that's what I thought about a cup or a glass. Well, I married a lady who thought we needed an upgrade, and, and she sufficiently upgraded, in which I said, how much did you spend on that? We probably only had a couple thousand bucks in the bank account at the time, and we weren't, you know, I wouldn't say we were necessarily thrifty, but it's, we tried to be, um, and which just sparked a, a pretty solid debate that went on for 25 or 30 minutes. She's in tears. I'm fuming mad. And uh, this is how she ended the conversation. Do you want me to take them back? And I'm like, well, maybe. And she's like, do you, do you know how much I spent? And she spent like six bucks at the dollar store. At that point, I'm like, oh, like, was this worth $6? And the answer is no, emphatic no. And so here's, here's what I know about that conversation. Uh, we were arguing about cups, but what I had done in that conversation as I had invalidated my wife in the area of finances, what she heard was, you don't trust me with our stewardship capabilities. You don't trust me to spend our money wisely. And so in that way, it brought insecurity in her. Uh, it even brought about some challenges in future conversations. And for some time, we had to work through money and finances and money and finances are one of the greatest stressors. And here's why. It's typically because oftentimes the way we view those things in relation to our past or our own families or the fact that we just don't talk about it, as long as we have X number in our account, we're fine. But it just brings a bunch of contention, and it can be really challenging. It's one of the top stressors in marriage today in America, finances, money-related issues. Um, we have a lot of challenges and far things that stress us in our marriage. And you might ask yourself the question, well, 
Why is that? And I would say that it all boils down to the idea of expectations. Uh, expectations are the formulated thoughts that we have in our mind of things that should come to pass for us. So we have ideas, expectations of things that should happen in our marriage. But here's the troubling thing, is that very rarely are those, com- uh, those expectations met. So what we live in, our marriages, full of stressors, are unmet expectations, typically because of this one reason. We fail to communicate that. We fail to have conversations around our expectations. And so because of that, uh, there's a lot of us in here that we married spouses and we didn't even see eye to eye on spiritual affiliation, where we would go to church, what, what kind of faith would we be. We didn't talk about a lot of these things prior to marriage. And then in marriage, we're like, we hope that works out. Uh, for a lot of us in here, uh, we think about uh, not only finances, but we think about intimacy. And those are things that we never really discuss. And we just hope that it works out based on our compatibility or even some of our past experience together. Uh, for a lot of us, we definitely haven't uh, talked about parenting responsibilities. Uh, for a lot of families in this room, probably represented, and also in Edgewood, you probably can't agree as to how we're going to discipline our children in some cases. Hey, are we going to bring about corporal punishment? Are we going to spank a kid? Or are we going to put them in a corner? And a lot of times, we, that brings about comp, uh, competition and competing with one another because it's an unmet expectation, things that weren't communicated clearly. What about household responsibilities? Do you hold a traditional view of a man going outside and taking care of the yard and a woman staying inside? Or, or do you have more of a, an egalitarian view, which means, hey, both people can contribute 50% and, and you, you both do a little bit here and there to make it work. You do whatever it takes. Or do you have more of what I would think of a godly view? And that is, hey, there's really not specific roles or duties. We all throw in pitch in because we are equal under the banner of Christ, but most of all, we want to be servants for him, and we want to be marked in that way. There's lots of expectations about that. What about social media? Maybe that's a marriage stressor right now. I would say that in the last handful of years, I have counseled more couples that have challenges around social media, those platforms, and how much their spouse might spend on a platform in any given day, or perhaps an evening when you could be building more intimacy uh, together, whether that be emotionally, physically, spiritually, intellectually, any of those things. What about habits, addictions, hang-ups, things that were brought into the marriage that you didn't even know about until you got into the marriage? Like, he surprised me with this. I didn't know that. Or, man, she never told me about all these things. And then you get in there, and now you're having to deal with past hurts, hang-ups, stories of the past, things that you've been, in a sense, addicted to. That could be a stressor, right? Strain a relationship pretty quickly. Not to mention, all of our families are probably a little crazier than we think. I mean, you got in-laws, you got crazy uncles, you got cousins that show up at surprising times, and you got to deal with those things. You got family, you got friends, you've got hurts in your past around relationships. So all of those contribute to stressors in our lives. Not to mention health and aging. Some of us, as we get older, the more frustrated we can get either with our spouse or our marriage, meaning that we're, we're older and we're a little bit potentially not in all cases, but get around a little slower. And, and so you just kind of see and you look and you go, that's kind of frustrating. And it can be in marriage. And it's a, certainly an area that could bring about stress. All of these things are true, not to mention that all of us have these little idiosyncrasies, these little things about ourselves that our spouses find irritating and we find to not be sinful. Think about that. Think about the things that you would go, oh, I'm not sure. Maybe you should think about that as sinful. I mean, if you got a nagging wife, she's like, no, I'm going to try to be a helper like God wants me to be to you. And you're like, oh, maybe that's sin. And they just don't classify it like that. 
there's a myriad of issues like that, right? And so we have all of these different stressors in our life. And the question is, is how do you deal with them? How do you work through those things? And, and I, if I'm honest with you, I have um, taught on similar subjects multiple times over the last nine years here. And I was looking and perusing back through all my notes, in which I keep in very deep de- details, um, I've realized I have spoken about every single issue uh, that's related to marriage, and I've used every marriage biblical text there is to use, which there's not a whole lot of them in your Bible that relate specifically to marriage. And so I'm just praying this week, and I'm like, Lord, I am at a writer's block. I, I just, I'm at a block. I, I don't know what to say to these people that would encourage their hearts, and, and Lord, I'm just, I need your help. And so as I'm praying and thinking through that on Wednesday, I'm searching through uh, my concordance, which is a way to look up words in, in the Hebrew or the Greek language. And, and so I'm looking for this word endurance, just thinking about enduring. Because if you're going to have marriage stressors, how do you endure? And so as I'm thinking through that, I land on a passage uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as I just begin to read that passage and really spend some time thinking about it, meditating on it, applying it to my life, um, I saw that Paul was writing to this church of Corinth, and he was encouraging them to be steadfast in their relationship with Jesus and with our Heavenly Father. And as I began to unpack that for me individually, I then did something, and I took some 3D marriage glasses, and I put them on my face, and I laid that over the text, and I thought, wow. If I can do these things as it relates to my life in Christ and as a husband to my wife, I'll be better for it. And so what I'm asking you to do is twofold. If you're single in here, uh, this message is for you as much as it is for somebody who's married in this season. And the reason why is because this, Paul, uh, this message that Paul is speaking to, uh, to the church of Corinth is he's in a sense saying, hey, listen, in this, this city called Corinth, uh, where there are so many challenges going on amongst pagan rituals, um, much immorality. Uh, there's probably at least 12 uh, pagan temples that are in that city, a city of approximately 700, and 750, 700 to 750,000 people. There is lots of, of greed and sensuality and philosophy and lots of different th- thoughts out there. And Paul is writing them, and here's what he's saying. He goes, there's a way that believers in Christ, Christians, conduct themselves in the world. And he goes, and this is how you should think through it. And so as we dive into this text, we're going to think through marriage stressors. We're going to think through our life in Christ. And we're going to think about what it looks like to be God's people. And I need you to do me a favor. As we're reading this text, if you are married, I need you to put on your marriage glasses. And I need you to see some things that I believe the Lord showed me. If you're single, I think the Lord has a message for you just as well. And so um, to God be the glory. Amen. Uh, Let's dive in. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read 18 verses, and uh, if you got a pen, I encourage you to take notes. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Uh, he says, hey, by, because we have this ministry, and what he's doing is he's building on chapter 3, uh, where in verse 6 and in verse 8, he clearly tells the church of Corinth that they have a ministry. And you might ask yourself, well, do I have a ministry? And here's what I would say, yes, if you have a new life with Christ, you have a ministry. That means that you, have a, you are an ambassador. You're making 
the appeal of God to other people as he works through you. And so as an ambassador of Christ, you have a ministry. Now, real quickly, in our American culture, we confuse what ministry is. We think ministry is something we invite people to. Hey, would you come to our region ministry? Ever heard that? Hey, would you come to our re-engage or our, um, our merge ministry? Hey, will you come to our student ministry? Hey, would you come and be a part of our kids' ministry? Raise your hand if you've heard that ever on any, any church you've been a part of. You got all those ministries? Listen, those are programs. These, those are tools that allow people to do ministry. But listen, if you take those resources, those tools, those books, those programs, and you remove the people, you have no ministry. Ministry is about God imploring his work through people. You and I are the ministers of the gospel. And so that's what he's saying. He goes, hey, listen, you have a ministry by the mercy of God. You have a life that should be rendered in service to our king. So we do not lose heart is what he says. When you think about losing heart, it means that, hey, you do not grow weary of doing good. You continue to live your life in sacrificial service to people. That's what we should do in singleness. That's what we should do in marriage. We have a ministry we should not lose heart. And he says in verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. By, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, when you read that, you're like, I have no idea what he just said. And so I'm glad to kind of unpack it for you real quickly. Here's what he's saying. He goes, because we have a ministry that God has given us, his promised Holy Spirit, sealed us for the day of redemption, Ephesians 1, is calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, Ephesians 4. He goes, you have a ministry, now share the word. And when you do that, you don't do it in a confusing way. You don't do it with crafty schemes. He goes, you just give them the word. You don't use underhanded tricks. You don't use manipulation tools. You don't do an altar call at the end of the service and ask everybody to come simply because that's not necessarily the way the gospel always works. He goes, what you do is you give them God's truth. You allow that to resonate with them. And, and then you do it in, in this reason that it's, it's going to be for them and God is going to use it to bear weight on their own conscience. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, he'll use a faithful orator for God's behalf and God's Spirit will do the rest. It's very much what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he says, Apollos watered, uh, I, Paul, watered, Apollos, I'm sorry, Paul, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Uh, that's the idea. He goes, you and I are just useful messengers. And so here's what I want you to understand. That is true of us as an individual. We are to be God's people. We are to share his word, the whole counsel of the truth. And we are to do that with gentleness and respect. First Peter 3.15, always being prepared to have an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. Always ready in season and out of season, as Paul writes to Timothy. Always waiting to see what the Lord is going to do. And we do so without losing heart. And here's the goal. If God intended you to be a minister, then he's going to strengthen your ministry. You don't lose heart when you bear the load God intended you to bear for his purposes. You know when we lose heart? Typically, when we, when we run out of fuel in the tank, it's typically because we're selfish, self-seeking, or we're doing it for wrong motivations. So let's talk about marriage. If we understand point number one, that our marriage is a ministry opportunity, what does that say? It means that your, your marriage is a ministry. It is two people leaving their father and mother, clinging together as one 
flesh. Jesus emphasized, and what God joined together, let not man separate. What he's saying is, is I'm going to take two people, and I'm going I'm to weld them together as one. And in God's math, one plus one is one. And I'm going to use them to show the world the mercy of God. And so, hey, do not lose heart. Financial struggles? Yeah, it's going to happen. Uh, got some, uh, some struggles in, in terms of jobs or addictions, or you got some struggles as you age, or potentially uh, kind of getting a little bit wayward in some social media, di- you know, dabbling, or you got some parenting challenges, some kids are knuckleheads, and you're struggling how to figure out how to teach them? Yes. Matter of fact, isn't that the words that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28? He, if you do marry, you're not going to sin. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. What he's saying is, is if God takes two people who are broken individuals, welds them together as one flesh, it will not be easy. You will have marriage stressors. It will be difficulty. It, you will have bumps in the road. You will have things that you never thought would hit you, and, and they're going to, in a sense, alter your foundation at times. But he says, don't lose heart. And the way you handle those things points to a holy God if you do it correctly. That's the point of the message. So you might ask yourself, well, do we struggle to think through marriage as a ministry of God? And I would say yes in our culture. Matter of fact, I think as we wrap up this message today, you'll see clearly how much of a struggle we have. Matter of fact, let me just show you uh, some statistics uh, that I grabbed, I I perused through the internet on statistics. Uh, I like a handful of them. This is from uh, Pew, an institute of research that gathers a variety of things across the nation and that are happening. And so this one here was uh, was a survey conducted in the last handful of years and asked the question, in religiously mixed marriages, what's the most important factor decision uh, in terms of your marriage. And so the question that really they're asking is, is how much of a faith experience is important when you choose your mate? And here's what's alarming about it. 51% of all people in the States would say that religion or faith backgrounds are not important for marriage. Okay, so that means when you married. Now, you might be here and you go, oh, no, 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 I, I disagree. Well, you've, you've taken time to disagree. But when you dated, you didn't agree with that. So what that means is, is that you didn't think it was important. What's interesting is, in that same idea of all married people, another 21% said it's, it's somewhat important. It's marginally important, which means that seven out of every 10 people that marry, faith is not a predominant framework of what they're building upon. Now, that's among all marriages, but it actually gets a little bit scarier. Um, So affiliated with the same religion, meaning you come from the same similar faith background, um, 36% say that it was very important, 26% say it's somewhat important, and almost four out of every 10, even with same faith backgrounds, say it's not that important at all. Now, that's with faith backgrounds. Now, when you begin to change different things, like so um, you have two people that are religious, but they're affiliated with different faiths. So one's a Catholic, one's a Protestant. Um, Then what you see is 18% would say it's very important, and 65% would say it's not that important at all. It gets even more challenging. If you have one that's a believer in Christ and one that's unaffiliated completely, so they don't need the church at all, then what they would say is 10% of our marriage is related on religious things or faith-building things, and 80% is not. Um, 
Then if you have both unaffiliated, which both are, are, are not connected to the church in any way, have no past experience with the church, they would say that 84% of faith is important, while only 5% would say that it is important. Now here's, you may be asking, okay, why are you showing me all this? And here's why. Listen, among believers, we have a very poor framework as to what marriage is. Marriage is not designed to make you and I happy but it's to make us holy, to make us more like Christ. And if that's the case, then we ought to be thinking and educating not only ourselves, but our kiddos on what it looks like to marry well as it is with faith. And the reason why is because marriage demonstrates the ministry of God to people. If you have more questions about that, I encourage you to go unpack week one and two where we really detailed that out for you. You can find it on the internet at stonepointchurch.com under the resource tab. Go look uh, at your current message series, and I encourage you to pack that out a little bit more. And so here's the deal. If marriage is a ministry opportunity, we do not lose heart. We press on, but we do have a lot of work to do as to educating what that looks like. Verse 3 says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. What he's saying is, he goes, if God has given us a ministry, he's changed our hearts and our minds, and we're to proclaim it, and we do so with God's word, not with crafting or cunning schemes, not with manipulation, but just with clarity. He goes, we need to realize that not everyone is going to hear, see, or receive the message. But then he says something really important in verse 4. In their case, meaning those who do not see our marriage as relating to the gospel, who don't proclaim the same message of hope that we have in Christ, you might ask yourself, well, why not? And they may say, well, it's a cultural challenge. Where Paul says in verse 4, in this case, it's the God of this world that's blinded the minds of unbelievers. He says, it's the father of lies. It's Satan. Satan is the one undermining the precedent of marriage. Satan is the one that's uh, under, uh, in in a sense, he's taking away the framework that we're building upon in terms of our need for Jesus. And he does so to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. John 8, 44 says that, that Satan is the father of lies. And one of the areas that he's lying to us most in our society is the way that believers correspond in holiness to God. And number two, uh, I would say in our marriages. And he is using culture to disintegrate the framework of marriage around the message of the ministry of marriage. Verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said this, Let light shine out of the darkness. And he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is individuals, he goes, listen, in a confused culture, keep pressing on. Keep being the light of the darkness. That's what Jesus uh, would say in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. He's talking about, hey, don't hide your light under a bushel. Hey, but be a city on a hill. Let your light shine. And he goes, proclaim your message in a culture where darkness prevails. And that's what we do as individuals, but then think about it in terms of marriage. If you just take those, that framework and overlay it, he goes, you do the same. In marriage, if our marriage is a picture of God's goodness, then he says, how much more should you let your light shine in marriage? And the way that you deal with marriage stressors, hardships, and everything, he goes, you do not lose heart, reminding you of verse 1. Now, here's the challenge. I would say Christianity in general, and I would say even marriage, is like a box of cereal. 
You might ask yourself, well, what in the world do you mean? Well, I tell you, if we ever go to Walmart, one of the most challenging aisles to get down is the cereal aisle. And one of the reasons why is because as you're walking down the cereal aisle, you have all these boxes, and every single one of them is bright colored, fancy picks, large font, and every one of them look a little bit different. And then they have this third thing in it, not, uh, not just with all these colorful patterns and pictures and all that. They offer prizes. Hey, I want that one. Well, you're not going to like shredded wheat. No, I, I really do. I love shredded wheat. <laughs> what? No, I want the prize. And, and I think that's what we think about in terms of our faith experiences. That's what we think about the church. That's what we think about marriage. What we want's the prize. Oh, man, she looks really good. She's got a fantastic container. The question is, is do you know what's inside? And the question that you have to ask yourself over and over again is, do you know what's inside? Listen, as you look at the church in America from the outside, you can look and you can go, hey, man, it's a fantastic container. Do you know what's inside? Jesus is interested about what comes out of a man, what comes out of a woman. It's far more important than what goes in. The, the reality is what he's saying is you need to be a light in the darkness. You need to be who God wants you to be, which brings the point in terms of marriage to alter or misunderstand the gospel's impact of marriage is a great danger. If you don't think that your marriage says something to the culture, then you're missing marriage altogether. I would say that at this point, probably on both camps, there's a handful of people, as we begin to walk through this process, you're beginning to check out in some way. And here's why. You're like, I don't understand. I mean, okay, I, I got a decent marriage. And what you would say is a decent marriage is, is that there's not too many stressors that make things too rocky at this point. But the question that you have to evaluate your marriage on is not do we fight often, but do we exude holiness in everything we do as a couple? When we're together, when we're apart, are we God's men? Are we God's women? That is what the Lord is concerned about as we display the gospel. And here's the deal. If you're kind of shaking your head, you're going, oh, I don't really go, then here's what you're doing. You're minimizing the gospel's impact through your marriage, which I would say is sinful. And I would say is a tragedy among the American church. Our marriages reflect the gospel, the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in their unity, equality, diversity. It's an incredible picture. It's a picture of the church. It is a picture of God's plan to save the nations. And you and I either point people to the God who saves or we point them to something entirely different. And we have to be thinking about that. You might ask yourself, well, why do I believe that? And here's why I believe we struggle to understand the gospel impact through marriage. And I would say it happens before we ever say I do. Far beyond the ability of people to leave their father and mother to cling together as one flesh, they're already doing it. So what's interesting is, is I've been paying attention to even to, to marriage trends and just not marriage trends, but divorce trends. And so you need to know that right now, divorce trends in our country are actually tracking a lot, little lower. I would say this, um, among millennials, very few of them are divorcing at this point in time, which if our baby boomer generation, which means 55 and up, 60 and up, um, if they would stop remarrying, divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, then it would go down significantly because you see that happening. They are the largest demographic of divorce that we have in our culture. Might be surprising because the millennials are the problem. Sorry, I had to do that. <laughs> but you might ask yourself, well, why? And so one of the reasons why, one of the contributing factors to that, though, is because millennials aren't marrying. They're moving in together. 
And so when it, you start thinking about the gospel impact in marriage, you start thinking about that way. How does the world see it? What about the church? And so I turned to Barna, the research group uh, that works largely in church. 65% of American adults think it's a good idea for couples to move in together before marriage. That's craziness. 35% would say, no, it's probably not a good idea. Now, here's the crazy thing is among all of those, 57%, and I would say even six out of 10 of us in this room in, on campus, because I think it's trending along with the church as well, have currently or even previously moved in with their boyfriend or girlfriend. So here's the deal. As, as you think through that, you might ask yourself, why? Like, what's the major reason? The major reason that these surveyors said was for compatibility purposes. Like, we want to make sure we know them before we make a mistake, uh, which is different than the baby boomer generation who largely would marry someone in the military or um, somewhere other, other than that, and they would work their differences out over time. Well, people now are wanting to work out their differences now. So let me show you one other slide because I think it's important as well. You might ask yourself, well, who is resisting these things uh, and what are the reasons? So the reason that people are resisting cohabitation is for this reason. 34% would say, well, uh, it's a faith reason. We don't think it would be a good idea because of our faith uh, in God. 28% would say, well, because we really, don't, we really don't believe that it's a good idea to have sex before marriage. But that's only one quarter of our society. 75% saying it's not that big of a deal either. 16% say, well, it just doesn't make good financial sense or it's not practical. 12% say, well, if I did that, my dad's going to kill me, right? Um, and you might be a part of that survey here. Uh, in, hadn't that changed over time? If you would have asked this question in the 60s, more people would have said, my dad's going to pull a shotgun out. Uh, but that's changing. 10% say some other reason. Now, what's more surprising to me than anything on this graph that I'm showing you is that practicing Christians, that would be born-again Christians or those who claim to know uh, God in some way, uh, 41%, so 4 out of 10 people that are sitting in churches across the nation today say that cohabitation before marriage is not that bad of an idea. Or, or in some ways, they would agree that it's a good idea to live together, either way you want to say it. So four in ten of Christians say, yeah, that's, that's probably a good idea. Now, I say these not to make you feel guilty, not to, not to bring about uh, some, uh, some twisted thing in your mind as about what I'm trying to accomplish here. I'm saying that because if you and I don't view the gospel in our marriage as a ministry to the world, then we can cheapen it. And the goal is, is to not cheapen this incredible picture of God's goodness to the world. The gospel of Christ was not cheap. It cost death. It, it was bloodshed. It, it was a lot for it. And unfortunately, in our culture, because we don't talk about sanctification of marriage, we begin to, in a sense, destroy the very fabric of what God intended it to be. And it's not all our fault, but it's been passed down. But it is something that we have to be thinking through. The reason why is because we have, verse 7, this treasure in jars of clay. Like, think about this. We have this incredible picture, God's goodness. He died for us, and he deposits his life in us. We're jars of clay, and we're there to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. The idea is, is that God is using people like us to display his ways. We get to do that as individuals. We're broken. We're messed up. Uh, we're depleted from all good things. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful, and yet God is faithful. He tells uh, Paul, Paul says to the church uh, of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 
uh, 1, verses 26 and 29. He goes, hey, listen, I'll use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I'll use the weak and the feeble things to shame the strong. Like God doesn't accomplish his purpose the way we think he does. And so here's what's so important for you to realize. Marriage is a picture of broken people. Pretty important. You and I are just jars of clay. We are feeble, we're broken, we're prone to sin. And yet God has put his greatest gift, the promised Holy Spirit, his salvation in us, fragile, broken, messed up people, which is why I would proudly proclaim, I think I'm the most messed up pastor in Van Zandt County. I am a broken jar asking for the power of God to manifest himself in my life. That's what our marriage should be. What we're not saying that marriage is a, a view of something that's perfect because it's not. Marriage is hard. It's difficult. Why? Because it's two entirely different beings created in God's image, but yet so different with different pasts, different hurts, different hangups, different preferences, different expectations. And God welds them together and he goes, good luck. Now follow me. And it's going to be hard. And while it's hard, I'm going to grow you into the man that you ought to be. And I'm going to take you from an 18-year-old boy who thought you knew what was wise, and I'm going to grow you up into a mature adult that looks like me. I'm going to take you into a girl who in many ways was deceived, and hey, you ran wildly after that guy, and it was a passionate, fun ride. And you look down, you go, this isn't fun anymore. And he goes, but I'm going to help you be a faithful example of Christ to a man who desperately needs to know him. That's the gospel. That's the picture that we're to be a part of. Matter of fact, he outlines, he goes, we, meaning the church of Corinth, you're afflicted in every way. Uh, the idea of afflicted, mean, afflicted means you're hard-pressed. It's like being squeezed like grapes. He goes, it's tough. Uh, he goes, but you're not, you're not crushed. You're, you're not out of it. He goes, you're perplexed, which means that you feel like you're without a way. You're disoriented in a sense. It's like being in the wilderness, and you're like, I don't know which way to go. I'm not sure how I, how I move forward. But he goes, but even though you're perplexed, you're not driven to despair. That even in the difficult times where you don't know which way you should go as an individual or even as a couple that's married, he goes, we look for a way. Can I tell you how you look for a way? You look for God's truths. You know, the greatest way he reveals himself in the lost desert is in the morning, the sun's going to rise. Friends, where does the sun rise? In the east. Where's it set? In the West, you look to God, He'll always give you direction. He always wants to make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You might feel persecuted, but He says you're not abandoned. You're, you're, you're not forsaken. You might feel struck down, which means you took an uppercut and it knocked you down, but you're not knocked out. Get back up. He goes, you've been struck down, but you're not destroyed. Why? Because you're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus might be also manifested in our body. For, what, what, for we who live are always being go over, given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So what he's saying, he goes, yeah, you might be hard-pressed. You might feel perplexed. You might be persecuted. You might be struck down. But he goes, you're not dead. You're living. So look up. Colossians 3, 2, set your eyes on things above. Follow hard. Pursue Jesus. He is enough. And when you have big troubles, it always reveals your need for a big God. When I talk to couples and they have no problems and you don't need any prayer for anything, then here's what I think. You're the God of your own life. 
Because people who need God have big troubles and they have big prayer lists, which is one of the reasons we say, hey, we'd love for you to communicate in us with prayer. And if you go, I don't really have a prayer life, then you must not have a big God. It reveals a whole lot about our depends upon him. And so listen, in all of our struggles, pray to a big God. Why? Because we live and experience through the death of Christ. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you in his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that grace extends to more and more people, may increasing thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now what he's saying here in this passage, he goes, hey, the reason we continue to move forward is because we know what Christ has done for us. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead, he goes, we keep pressing on. And the reason we keep pressing on is because if we can fix our eyes not on the earthly troubles we have, but on our heavenly reality, he goes, we have hope. We don't lose heart. Which brings me to my fourth point. Here's what you need to realize, that valuing your marriage to Christ is way more than valuing your earthly marriage. So you might know, not know this. You might not have ever been a, a part of a teaching of this, but here's what you need to know. Jesus is clearly asked about marriage in all the gospel accounts, or at least in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, the synoptics don't include. It's a little different. But in Matthew 22, in Mark chapter 12, and Luke chapter 20, Jesus asked about that. And here's what he says. He goes, in the resurrection, meaning the eternal, he goes, you neither have marriage nor is anyone given in marriage. What? So he goes, listen, when you, when you, when you get to heaven, he goes, you're not worried about your marriage between your spouse. And you might ask that question, well, am I going to know you? Yes, I'm going to know my wife, Kelly, just the same way I know my kids, which is it's a brother or a sister. So in this, this, this temporary time, this season, Kelly's my helpmate. She helps me become more like Christ as we display the gospel in our ministry, our lives. But there's going to be a day where we finally are married in heaven, but not to each other. So you might ask the question, well, who am I going to be married to? And ladies, here's what you need to know. You're going to be married to the perfect man. Can I get an amen? Praise the Lord. Yes. Like Jesus, the one who never lets you down. He's never disappointed. He's never made a promise that he didn't keep. He's never overpromised and underdelivered. He is the, the one who always keeps his word. He is the immovable, unchanging God who loves you and desires to have a relationship with you. And one day, though right now you see in a merely dimly lit through your imperfect spouse, one day you'll see the perfect spouse, the husband to his bride, the church, Jesus. Men, we get that same hope, that one day we will be one with him. And we will have a perfect Savior, Father, Husband that will never let us down. That's an incredible hope. Which if we believe that, the reason we think through that, if our marriage is a reflection of what's come internal, then it means we better put an emphasis on how we care for our marriage. But our greatest obligation is not to our husband or to our wife, but primarily to our Savior, Christ. Which is why I'll emphasize this real quickly before I wrap up and give you some hope and encouragement to get out of here. There's two ways that you could stir my anger greatly. So a, a gentle word, uh, answer turns away wrath, and a harsh word stirs up anger is what Solomon said in Proverbs. If you want to stir up a harsh word in me, you do two things. One, you call my kid a, uh, a preacher's kid. That, that'll stir me greatly. Number two, you try to set my fourth grader up with your fourth grader. And I'm being very serious about this. And here's, here's what I want you to understand. 
If the gospel implication for our marriage is that they, they reflect God's goodness, then we better start thinking about our sophomores and our seniors and our college freshmen and who they date. Because the goal is, is not to find somebody compatible. The goal is to find someone who is yoked to Christ the same way that they are. And so here's what I would tell you. My son, at this point, doesn't understand. My daughter doesn't understand what it looks like to be all that God wants and for them to be fulfilled. How in the world are they possibly going to fulfill one of their friends? And so listen, if my little girl gets a rose from a body, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, hey, Blakely, that's a beautiful rose. You know that rose color right there, red? That's a, that red represents friendship. Dad, you sure? I mean, that love. Yeah, friendly love. (laughs) And so here's what we want you to understand, son. Listen, you can have really good friends. And hey, we think that's wise. And there are friends that are girls and there are friends that are boys. And they can be good friends to you. But all we need in life right now is trusted friends. And then here's what we do. We point them to every single friend we know. And we have three or four examples of faithful single friends. And we say, this is what we think God wants for your life. Stay single, buddy, until you can't. You live your life for the Lord. That's what we care about most. And so we are bending and shaping their heart. Which, listen, isn't that contrary to our culture? Listen, the church, every, every church in the country ought to be talking about this for the next four weekends. Why? Because we don't understand marriage. And if marriage is representation, it is a ministry to the world. Guys, girls, wow, don't we have some work to do? We have imperfect, broken marriages. Why do we want our sophomore in college to be dating a guy who will never fulfill her? Will let her down, break her heart, smash her so she's broken and in shambles, needing our regeneration program, trying to find her purpose in life. That's not the goal. The goal is to say, devote your heart to Jesus. Live for Him, love Him. Serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then when God's man shows up, we'll know. But until then, Blakely, I love you, and God loves you way too much for you to be dating a bunch of boys who will never care for your heart the way that Jesus will. And can I just confess to you, church, I am saying that with great boldness, and I was a boy who broke many girls' hearts. Not because I was a stud, but because I was a fool. And I left people in shambles. And oftentimes, as a manipulator, I did it under the guise of, I think God wants me to move on. I was a fool. And I would just tell you, we have to think through this. And so verse 16, we do not lose hope. He goes, we don't lose hope. Why? Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Whatever it is that you're dealing with right now, he goes, hey, listen, it's momentary. And and one day you're going to see the weight of glory that goes beyond all comparison. So as we look now, not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He goes, fix your eyes on things above. And so I would say this, and I'll close with this. Our marriage issues, our biggest ones, are when we focus on our worldly troubles rather than the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Guys, your finances are nothing if you understand that God of heaven wants you to steward them well. 
our broken relationships, our lackluster sex life, our wayward children, our aging bodies are nothing as long as we keep our eyes fixed on eternal things. And so when we start complaining about big, big things going on, when we despair that our years are getting faster and they, they, we get so much older, the question is, is, what do you think that age does? Does it bring you closer to death or does it bring you closer to meeting the God of your salvation? And so Paul says, hey, listen, I'm, wi- I'm willing, I'm ready. Take me home. And it's a tragedy that we don't live in that light. With each passing year, we have more regrets, we have more troubles, and we forget that there's a big God who loves us, cares for us, and is ready to call us home. But until he does, he says, be a jar of clay. And you know what a jar of clay does? It is possesses God's salvation and it sheds light. And here's what I would tell you. The more brokenness in your jar the more there is an opportunity for a light to shine out of it. And so may we be God's vessels as individuals, as husbands, as wives, as parents. May we be all that he wants us to be. And so church, I'm going to ask you to do something a little different than we typically do uh, on both campuses. I'm going to ask that you would stand as we pray. And we're just going to pray that God would move among our hearts in the area of our marriages and our dating relationships and being all that God intends for us to be. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to proclaim the message of hope, the excellencies of your word. I pray, God, that you would captivate our hearts and our minds' attention on these things, not to uh, bring guilt or shame, because you are the God who renews and restores all things. And so, Lord, we are in this room, and there are some people that they're feeling guilty because in this season of their life, they're, they're living together and they're not married yet. There's some that they're, they're struggling with a lot of challenges in their marriage. They're, they're hanging on by a thread. There's others who have dated people in the past, uh, and they have scars and hurts. There's others that they married an individual that's not in the church now, and, and they, they wonder, how do I continue to live? Like, it's, it's challenging. How do I be God's man, or how do I be God's woman when my spouse doesn't want anything to do with it? And here's the answer to all. I pray, God, we would just be your people. God, help us to not lose hope, to set our eyes on eternal things, and to remind ourselves that the ministry we have is what power is in us and the desire you have to work through us. And so, Lord, here we are as humble, broken vessels saying, here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. Father, I pray that be true for our church. In Jesus' name, amen.